When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I recently sat down in a New York studio with George Clinton, who is, of course, the founder of Parliament and of Funkadelic, and one of the most important figures in 20th century music, I think it's safe to say. We talked just before his 80th birthday, which just passed, and he discussed his entire historic career and explained why it's not over yet. Let's get straight to that interview. George Clinton, thank you so much for being here. Good to be here. Glad to be out. Yeah, we were saying, like, if you're back on the road, the world must be returning to what it should be. Well, that's good evidence that it's all right, because I sure wasn't coming out till it got right. And I got my shots. The band is ready. Everybody got their shots. We just met up last night. So, yeah, you can. that's pretty good evidence that it's all right. <laughs> You were going to say farewell in, in 2019. You had a farewell tour. Is this technically still part of the farewell tour? Technically it is. They didn't give us a chance to get off. We was almost there, you know, right at the end of the last One Nation tour. It was just about at the end of it, and the pandemic shut us down. So it gave me a chance to get some rest you know, and get prepared to really do it right. So now people know I got, I'm going to finish this next year off and I'll be out then. But um, right now I got the kids are ready to go. They've been practicing for this for like three years and it was going great. And 2022, is that farewell or, or you, it's okay to pull back on the farewell? We don't want you to say goodbye. Yeah, now. I ain't going to, I'm going to pull back for uh, now. Okay. I'm pulling back from, you know, right now because it's, that gave me some rest, and um, I feel good, you know. Got all my blood work done with the doctors and all that. Shit. I ain't got no problem, no meds. So I'm, I'm feeling good. So it's not goodbye, it's hello again. You're, you're, you're it's hello that. again. I mean, really. That's great. You're have to drag me off now. <laughs> I asked guys from the Beatles and the Stones, would they actually want to uh, pass away on stage? <laughs> I wouldn't give a fuck. <laughs> You know, this is, I'll be 80 in two, in two months. So, and I feel good as hell right now. So if I go out on stage, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, <laughs> He went out funking. <laughs> you know what? We could all do worse than those, uh, those words, I guess. Oh, I'm trying, I'm telling you, we can definitely do worse than going out funking. That's easy. <laughs> Tell me about how you spent the, the pandemic and what that was like for you. You know, I was lucky when we shut down for the pandemic. You know, it was, it was tired, first of all, but we were, because we had just worked real hard to get the new show on the road and we was rehearsing for, and getting all that together. And when the pandemic thing happened, we were able to shut down and stop for a minute. And I really didn't have to worry about, because I had another habit that I was really into. And that was painting. Really? Oh, yeah. I did a lot of painting and artsy-fartsy stuff and got 
carried away with it and it got good to me. I got an art manager and we're doing these NFT things and it's getting really deep. I just have one question about your painting though. Aren't you colorblind? Oh yeah, I'm colorblind. That's what made, <laughs> that's what make it even funnier because I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> and, and everybody seemed to like kind of, you know, like, like it. And it reminded me of, you know, when we actually start going into funk music as opposed to doo-wop, we was ad-libbing. We was ad-libbing, jamming and grooving, and it became our thing. That became our calling. The funk became our calling. So the art feels the same way, because I didn't know what I was doing. But then when this pandemic happened, I saw another thing I could actually spend my time you know, I don't do drugs no more, so I have a lot of time off with no, you know, work on the road. So I got down, got canvases, spent all kind of money on canvases, and and we got a load of stuff for, the, and they call it the pandemic series. Wow! And it actually worked out really good. I mean, you said that you were so colorblind that when you look at some of the classic Parliament and Funkadelic album covers, you couldn't really even see what was going on because they were so color dependent. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, you know, I have to like really look close and see where the shades are at. And having, doing that and then paint myself, I started getting familiar with the tones, values, and I started seeing colors that way because I got into abstract and shapes and tones and values and it feels good and it actually got what they call a lexicon you can see the you know the handwriting you know i did it that's amazing yeah did you get to recording any music writing new music oh i did did a lot of music we did a couple of albums that we waiting to put out we're going to do those verses i don't know the exact date so sometime in august right george clinton and p-funk all-stars versus parliament funkadelic that's kind of cheating, isn't it? <laughs> Not really, because we use we using all of the there's people that sample P Funk. They're gonna be part of P Funk All Stars. Got it. You know, so it'll be George Clinton and everybody that sample us against uh, Parliament Funkadelic together. It'll be fun because they did their version of what we was doing. That's uh, the clones. Does it ever bug you that for a whole generation who hears Atomic Dog, <laughs> they heard the Snoop song first? And it, it messes with their perception of it a little bit? No, it, may, it makes make me feel proud, you know, because it's part of the plan. It's doing what we, that's the only way you're going to stay around. You know, you can't come back the same. Your kids ain't going to like that. You, you're too old. Get the get out of here. You know, so that was a good excuse to stay around. They got their version of Atomic Dog. And the next, it's been two generations since we did it. That it's, now it's actually out long enough for somebody to re-record the whole thing. I did the whole thing for Trolls in, in uh, right. Disney with Anderson Pack and, um, you know, the other people in there. That made it a brand new song. So when you first heard it being a Snoop Doggy Dog. I did that with him. Yeah, I yeah. was there right when, you know, I did my own parts when, when Dre was doing Snoop and, and um, Pac and all of that. I was in the studio. Those weren't samples most of the time. I actually went in and did the live versions of it. So I knew the plan with the the L.A. You know, G G Funk. Dre and them used to have a club called uh, Uncle Jam's Army. That was the club. That was our name of our album. They asked us for the use the name Uncle Jam's Army. So that was before N.W.A. So I watched them act. I didn't believe in it at first. I didn't think it, you know, I was so used to New York. Hardcore rap that 
I didn't think that that was going to be all it was. But they, they really pulled it off. You know, the straight out of Compton whole G-Funk thing still is here. Snoop is Uncle Snoop now. You know, back then I was Uncle this, uh, uh, Daddy that. Now that whole generation is Uncle, you know. So I watched them, you know, just grow into their thing the same way I watched New York when, you know, earlier, early 80s, you know, Africa Bimbata, if you know, on Uncle Jam's Army, we got the fan names on the back of the album. Africa Bimbata's name is the first one on there, you know, because that was in, in New York. And I watched that whole Bronx, Brooklyn thing develop, and it worked so thoroughly. I was glad I did get along with hip-hop because my fear was that the song was going to be on TV, you know those K-Tel packages where you see all your songs on there? You don't get nothing from that. But at least the sample stuff, you had a chance to put some interpretation on who gets paid for it. Right. they just not getting around to figuring that out. <laughs> you know, and I'm still here and I'm glad I took the long way around. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. I've said this to you before, but I mean, the, one of the things that's so amazing about your career and the fact that you're still here is that you, you're a walking museum of this, of the entire history of a whole strand of American music. I mean, you, you can yeah. go from, from doo-wop to Kendrick Lamar and beyond, and that was, that's your story. I mean, I, I, I prided that a long time ago. Coming out of, you know, New York, a Brill building to work right around the corner here, being a part of that whole... 56, 7, 8, we started in 56 and started coming over here trying to get a record after Frankie Lyman and Teenagers and all the New York groups, Harlem and Brooklyn and all those groups. We watched the do our thing. And just being a part of rock and roll as it came in, I worked in a record store at 15 and, you know, it was Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis was my favorite of that whole click of, you know, that kind of music. Jerry Lee Lewis was it. I watched all of that go into 59 Motown show up. And that was it. I knew I was going to be a part of rock and roll history, doo-wop history, and I made the plans from then. Because Motown was, it was it. I worked right in Joe Bet, right in the Bill, Brill building here. And that to me was a story that I, I maintained all, even though we changed the funk, you know, like we played with the Vanilla Fudge in Connecticut, which we just played the other night, and we used their instruments. So we heard what rock and roll, I mean, what R&B sound like over Marshall Amp. Once we heard that, we knew, okay, this is what Jimi Hendrix is doing. This is what, how they get that. And we became loud doo-wop singers, loud Motown singers. That became what we call Funkadelic, you know, and we just mixed the two of them, and that became our new thing. I kept my eyes on whenever the music changed, I learned to like 
the people that was getting ready to put us out, the kids who was getting on your nerve with the new version, we came along with bow, 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 that kind of thing. It didn't bother me when I heard same thing. Kids always bring the new version of the absurdity into rock and roll. Rock and roll was that when it first came out. And every time I hear a new version of that, it gets on your nerve at first, but then when you let go of that, you're able to, oh, this is it. If I hurry up and get on it, I ain't going to seem like I'm so old. Now, obviously, Testify was a, a big breakthrough. Yeah. And there's two versions. So people don't realize that there's the single version, then there's the version re you re-recorded. Yeah. And that's more like what you wanted it to be. And the but, first time. Yes. But, but how, how did that song come together? The first, the first version of it, everybody was on this... Um, this Bob Dylan kick, you know, the four tops, you know, reach out for me and Bernadette and standing in the chat, all of that, all the day, all the day, all the day. Everybody was doing that. Mick Jagger was doing that. So when we did Friends, Inquisitive Friends, uh, asking me what come over. doing my interpretation of Bob Dylan, you know, but, but not Motown, but in between that. I have to admit, until I saw that you said that those songs like Bernadette were influenced by Bob Dylan, that never occurred to me, never. Oh, that was everybody. That was one thing Motown was always up on. Whatever knew was happening, they got their versions of the song. They had a bunch of songwriters who could, <laughs> same as the Brill Building. Yeah. They write a song for you in a minute. You did your version of that. And I did my yeah. version. Testify was my version of, you know, that era, you know. And um, like I said, that straight atonal friends and greater friends uh, asking me what come over me. You know, once you hear me say it, then all of a sudden, oh, that really do. Reach out for me was saying, I'm on a run, but I have no place to go. Levi was really singing it. Yeah. But he had Bob Dylan, I mean, Holland Doge Holland. It was them. Yeah. They knew what they were doing. That was the real version. I mean, Bob Dylan wrote the, some jams, the best songs. He was a folk singer, so he didn't put all that emphasis on vocal time. It was a story. They came along with the story and his magic of that tone. Mm. And what revelations did you take from the arrival of Jimi Hendrix? Because he was a very important. To the whole that's that's what I made him make that move because see I know Jimmy is Jimmy James in the Flames right I knew King Curtis you know when he played it and we used to laugh if the dude with no shoes on with a tuck <laughs> you know that, and so he was freaky even though we didn't know what freaky was he always stood out like that you know when he was with those guys we had a manager Kit Lambert right it was the who Kit Lambert yeah. had track records we were on the same label with him. Something they call the Northern Soul. Right. They had a, 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 you know, I guess store making bootleg records or whatever they was doing. But we did some of those with them. And I, really, this is Jimmy James. What? And when I saw his hair, like, what the hell happened? <laughs> but then I saw the the magic that he he did when they did those first things and what um, Pete Townsend, Eric Clapton, what they was all saying about who is this dude. I understood what it was. It was the same blues guys that I used to see in the club that played with their teeth, played behind their back, but loud as hell. And he added to the degree of Miles Davis, you know, with jazz, he could play with it that that radically. And the band 
that he had together, that had to be that had to come from someplace. They wouldn't have done that if they knew what they were doing. In my opinion, they probably wouldn't have never got together. You know, but once that happened, that magic of, of them three, and to me that was the premier version of the Jimmy. A lot of people like the second version, you know, but that to me was, are you experienced? Are you really experienced? They meant that shit. Because <laughs> you had to get versed in that. Matter of fact, when it came out, I bought Electric Ladyland, Are You Experienced? And uh, Access Bowl is Love. Yeah. Bought all three of them at the same time. Colony Records right around the corner. There were at least two other key influences. One, of course, was someone who would later become your, your friend, uh, Sly Stone. Before he became part of your life, which is a whole other story, what was his impact on you when you heard him and, and the Family Stone at that point? I first heard of him with Dave Kaplick. That was his first, I mean, his managers that I knew, him and his sister. He was the president at Columbia Records. And we were also over there talking to him because one of our friends, Ernie Harris, was managed by Dave Kaplick too. So he said, I'm going to show you somebody. I mean, you can make a record that's good, you know. We had did music for my mother and Free Your Mind, Your Ass Will Follow. We was... You know, hot with the psychedelic thing. Sly was on his way pop. And Dave, Dave was saying, this is what you got to look like, you know, because we were dark. <laughs> you know, Sly was bright. And, you know, to me, that was the step between Motown and Jimi Hendrix. We tried to go where Jimi was at and on out. You know, but Dave was saying, this is what you get. Sly, he played that Sly's record. It was the same, I felt the same way Prince later on told me he felt when he got to Warner's and heard Bootsy's first record. I knew we had to go back in the studio and actually do some other stuff. And that, you know, one night or two later, Bootsy came with us, gave us the opportunity to get the horns. And so that became the up for the downs of P-Funk mothership and all that. And I think it's fair to say another influence was LSD itself. Oh, hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I I fought against even thinking that or wanting to say that because a lot of people say, you know, give you inspiration. It took me a long time to wait, wait a minute. I wouldn't have never done none of that shit, you know, if I didn't have that whole freedom of, you know, being into Boston. We went to Boston and hung out with the kids and everybody was happy, love and peace. That was bullshit, you know, for a reason. You have to watch your back. But everybody seemed to believe that. And once Woodstock happened, to me, it ended the war. The whole That was the whole thing of it. To me, the whole thing ended with Woodstock, too, at the same time. The LSD got us into that whole thing, got us out of it, too, because soon they started talking about buying it, selling it. To me, I got the instincts of the streets. If you're selling it, somebody's doing it to make money, I'm scared. You know, but and that was right. That's because it ended after that. You know, started getting bad reports. People didn't like long hair and da 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 da. It was the whole thing changed. But it served its purpose of ending that war, in all of freedoms, women rights, black rights, gay rights, and all of that happened during that period for a minute. Now we're back here again. Got to do it again. But LSD. Later on, I realized. Oh my God. A lot of that stuff that I got out of that, I still glad I do believe it. Do the best you can and funk it, you know. And those kind of things come from that. Free your mind, your ass will follow. I didn't know what the fuck I was saying. <laughs> you know, to me, I'm just saying it, you know, because it sounds deep. 
But after a while, people started writing about it, and, and my boy Ernie Harris, who worked in the barbershop with me, said, no, you're being channeled, shit coming through, you blah, blah, blah. I ain't dealing with none of that. One thing that is hard for me to conceptualize is you don't really play an instrument, right? I mean, it's a, No, so, they, they call it head sessions. Yeah, but you've been writing songs since the 50s and, and, in, and, and not just for yourself, you were, so how did that, how did that well, work? At first, you sung the parts. Yeah. In the 50s, you actually sung the bass parts. That was part of the background and the tenors and the, the guitars. The vocals did everything. Right. So by the time they started making grooves for it, you pretty much knew what was going on. And like I said, then at the Brill Building, you, you had you, you had the Phil Spectors, the Carol Kings, and the Don Kirshners. You had all the variations of rock and roll that was coming out of New York and Philly, you know. You had all that to like, wow, I got a little bit of this inf information. Get to Motown, bam, they do that shit almost like jazz. Yeah. But it's a dance, you know, it was dance music. I paid attention to all of that, and the best musicians were studio musicians anyway. So I got, I remember how I did head sessions. It was easy with my little kid brother, I mean, you know, Billy and Eddie. They were kids, so I could actually, whoa, huh? Hey, I could tell them the parts, and they wouldn't tell me to shut up. Years later, they did. I said, well, you don't play no instruments. <laughs> <laughs> but how does that work with, like, chord changes and stuff? You know what I mean? Like, how would you... Same, it's the same thing. Yeah. It's the same thing. You know, we sung the parts. And once you, you know the chord changes that you like and you feel, everybody had different styles. All rock and roll was three-chord blues, basically, anyway. You know, and they started getting slick, you know, like when we got, went out on the road first time, we tried to sing Seven Rooms of Gloom by the Four Tops. Yeah. I need you, darling, desperately. We didn't realize you have to have a sheet music for that. Your average band can't play that <laughs> from the ear. We got to the Apollo and effed up worse than we had ever in our life because we didn't have our band and we was trying to sing a song and we thought the band could ad-lib it. No, you can't ad-lib them kind of chords. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so you learn pretty much how to do it. On the, I, matter of fact, I can do it on the fly now better than I can in the studio because you get in that zone and it just come to you. You ain't got to get deep or think about it. It just, and it ain't no real logic to the stuff they say nowadays. You can just say words nowadays. That's the style. If you listen to rhymes and things, the hip hop music now, it's like they have a whole new thing. That that ain't deep no more. They got a whole nother mumble vibe going that pretty soon they're gonna be some classical records mumbling, you know? <laughs> Once you said a, a, a key thing was learning to keep an audience captivated even with a slow tempo. Yeah. Oh, we got we got that again from the Vanilla Fudge. Really? Yeah. They 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 did. Dun -dun 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 set me free. Why don't you, babe? Set me free. Why don't you, babe? Get that long vibrato. That was the Supreme songs. They uh, did like a heavy slow version of that. Heavy vote slow yeah. version with that Marshall amps and shit. Yeah. Shadow Morton did it. You know, and so it was really out there, but he did that one. They did um People Get Ready. There's a really slow and they mastered that slow tempo. Otis Redding did it. He mastered being able to do it something slow and keep your attention. That's the hardest thing in the world to do. 
because the dynamics got to be, you know, all the time. You can't let up. We started doing that in the Bernie always thought it was too dark, you know, but it was bluesy. And I saw all the stuff that rock and roll bands were getting away with almost being bluesy. No, we're going to do this, and we did it. To me, you do it with confidence. Anything you do with confidence, people think you mean it, it's all right. No, you don't lose faith in it. And once they get into it, you get in that threshold of in the zone, then it's like it's more than doing it fast because everybody can get up there, play at the highest energy, and you peak. But do that slow, you really got something going. When did you start thinking of funk as a genre, as like the genre you were working in? After Testify. After Testify, and like I said, seeing um, Jimi Hendrix, Cream, they did rock and roll and blues, like my mother. To me, the only genre that wasn't taken was that New Orleans version of R&B. Get out my life, woman. Get out my life, woman. You don't love me no more. They were really the funky, funky, funky. And to me, we could actually get away with that version of it. Because if you know, the Neville Brothers came out around the same time. All that stuff was pop. Most, it was R&B for a minute. You know, it went through the clubs. But Aaron Neville's and all those songs are pop. And so I realized, okay, we'll do this version of it. You know, we'll hey. Everybody was saying, what the hell are you talking about? What you're saying? It was a groove. And that's the, the whole theme of Funkadelic. So it was immediately after testified in trying to get a couple of follow-ups, and I realized it's hard as hell to get a, a 45. If you get three in a row, you're lucky. You know what I'm saying? And by the fourth, then you're too old, usually, to try to do it. Blues, R&B, and that stuff, they was 50 and 60-year-old people still doing that. I looked at B.B. King when he turned 50, and I was like, I ain't in no hurry. <laughs> you know, to me, it gave you time, you know. Did any of the New Orleans guys ever comment on the fact that, that you were, I mean, because you had no connection to New Orleans whatsoever? <laughs> Not then, but years later, yeah. we became really tight with yeah. the family, the Neville brothers, grandkids, kids, all of them, you know, Alan Toussaint. You know, over the years, because they compared us, you know, the good old music, uh, Mama with the Funkadelli, they compared that with Sissy Strut. Because it was, it was a track for a group to sing on, and the group wasn't there. It was just a band track, and that became a sound, you know, and we started being proud of it. You know, once you feel proud of it, then you ain't, you know, because otherwise funk would have been for old folks if we didn't do it the way we did it, you know. And then we started doing the costumes once I went to Canada, and so that, oh, if you... Make it look like church, you know, but not church. You know, wear diapers. Somebody else got a robe on. Well, there's a little bit of Mardi Gras in that too. I never that, thought of that. We didn't know it on on purpose. We didn't do it on purpose, like. Yeah. But years later, we was able to use that as the, you know, a carnival, you know. And, and but especially when Mothership came, it was time to go back to being bright like Sly. It was definitely Mardi Gras then because it was a spaceship. We had leather suits on that cost. 10 times more than anything anybody else was wearing. So it was totally opposite from a diaper, <laughs> you know, and a sheet. They're yeah. making a movie about Neil Bogart. Yeah, his, and, his uh, sons. And, yeah, and Wiz Khalifa apparently is going to play you. Yeah. Uh, do you have any advice for him, and do you, how do you feel about that casting? Well, you know, my uh, grandkids and great-grandkids are, 
in the movie. Did a band with him, with Wiz Khalifa. Perfect. Yeah, they're playing, they're playing their parts with him. From what they said, they they say he was on it. They're probably doing a quick version of it. They're not emphasizing no one, but they emphasize basically Neil. Right. It's about Neil. It's not about yeah, it's about, it's Neil. Not about so, you know, kids. It's not about yeah. When you know Neil, you know Neil go all the way back to Buddha or Neil Scott. See, I know his whole history from working with him and Cecil Holmes right here when he was Buddha. So he have a whole lot of story to tell. We was just one of a whole bunch of groups that he he made big. I love that he would uh, that he would ship gold and return platinum. They say that's yeah. the most famous thing everybody yeah. say. Ship gold and it, it return platinum. Now, when you started Funkadelic, part of the thing was that the Parliament's name was tied up. You couldn't use it. It was just it was, for a minute. We were actually. So was it always the plan that I'm gonna you know I'm gonna yeah. provide it or, or just kind of work? Oh out no, it was it. always the plan. You know because. Smokey was my idol, you know, and I wanted to write songs for other people. You know, we had a couple of records out, Roy Handy, Tamla Lewis, you know, the Northern Soul stuff. Right. We got it real big on the first records I did before any of this. So I really wanted to do that anyway. And when I realized that this psychedelic thing that we're doing, the record company I was with didn't know nothing about it. They wasn't going to hear none of that, you know. And after we did good old music. Good Old Music was the last Parliament record, but that was the beginning of the sound of Funkadelic. The next record we came out with was Funkadelic, you know, with that sound. And um, we knew we had to change then, and we didn't know what the owner of the company was at, so we, we didn't know what we could do with Parliament name. It wasn't told we couldn't use it. We just assumed we didn't want to get in no trouble with it. Funkadelic was the image that was happening all of a sudden. So we went, ran with it. And it didn't take about six months and we got a deal with Holland Doge Holland, you know, and that we put an album out, Osmium, with them. And then, you know, I think it's unique in the entire history of the music business because you had these two things going at once and you had this idea that every Funkadelic album had a twin in a, in a Parliament record and vice versa. Yeah. And I, I don't think there's anyone else did anything like that. Oh, it ended up being three of a Bootsy too. After a while, right. all the, the the mothership and the clones and the children of production, all that started including Bootsy, the Horny Horns, Eddie Hazel, Burning World Rail. Everybody with the deal. The object was to get everybody their own deal, you know, with different labels. Somebody would always be hitting. And Roger, we actually did more bouncing the house. <laughs> A lot of people don't know that. And we had Roger on our own label. And when he didn't, you know, sign up with us after we did more Bounce to the House, as Zap, we made up the name for his younger brother. Gave his brother the name, which well, is his name, but we used him as opposed to Roger's name because Roger was going to sign with us on Uncle Jam. We got a hit on Zap, and he didn't want to be Zap at first. But it was so big, <laughs> he had to end up being Japanese. And then he took the rest of it to, our idea was to have one on CBS and the other one on Warner Brothers and have them fighting against each other, keep Parliament Funkadelic. But he didn't know what we was doing at first, you know, yet. When did you realize that Bootsy was Bootsy, that it was going to be a whole thing of its own? Soon as he got with us on the road, you know, you could see people looking around, whoever's singing here, trying to see who that is in the back. You know, because he had the Funkadelic image, but it was a Bootsy version of it. It was another thing. It was Jimi Hendrix, but 
not bubble gum, but pop, you know, you know, kitty. You know, and that's what we realized. We could actually get away with silly love songs with him, which was what Parliament wanted to do. You know, a lot of his songs would have been on Parliament. Right. Younger people sometimes don't understand that they were very separate ideas, that Parliament was supposed to be the kind of the sweeter, more accessible, tighter version yeah, of the thing. A, right? a yeah, a funk yeah. was out there. And could, yeah. We could get away with anything as that. But then when Bootsy came, it was another really cutesy, but Jimi Hendrix overtone. We were using Jimmy's vibe, because that's bigger than life. And Bootsy had that bigger than life. So we, I'm not second, but the next record was Bootzilla. I told him, don't try to live up to, when I was writing the song, I knew this was going to be one of them songs that you talking about yourself. I'm the rhinestone, rock star, monster of a dog, baby, baba. You promoting yourself, and he's not like that. He didn't, he didn't want to, he thought that was too egotistical. I said, look, I'm doing, I'm Dr. Funkenstein. We love you, Dr. Funkenstein. I said, you just can't believe it. <laughs> you can say it, but as soon as you start believing it, run. That's the, that's the idea when you do that. You've now been sober for, for quite a while. At least from you know, you know what? I actually get higher than I did before, you know, because I smoke weed now. Right. And weed is ten <laughs> times you get ten times higher than trying to get high with any of that crack. It crack is the you chasing it is the high. Trying to find it is what gets you messed up. Right. You're trying to you're trying to chase that high from the beginning. Yeah, you yeah. ain't gonna get it. And they, and they, after you got it the first time. That one ain't coming back no more. So you never actually get high. Trying to, because you never reached that point. Now, the, when I started smoking weed again, it was like, and this is what I've been missing. <laughs> I've been out here doing this other thing, costing all that money, getting into all this trouble, all the down, the way people look down on you, all of that. When I could have smoked a joint, I had forgotten that. And so I'm happy. I got my card. <laughs> I go anywhere they serve it. Where did the chanted style of hooks that's so key to your music, we want the funk, all that stuff, that was showing. Yeah, that's really it? Yeah. yeah. Run, Joe. Billy's got in the head. Run, Joe. Run, Joe. Run as fast as you can. Run, Joe. He poorly is holding me hand. Most of it, the horn players did the singing. So they be up there singing. They usually sing in unison. And, yeah, that's basically what that was. And that's, like, big band R&B Swing band, you know, what Count Basie and Duke Ellington was doing, other versions. Louis Jordan was doing the, the street club version of it. Well, how did you get the idea to incorporate that into what you're doing? I just try to remember all the things that happened my mother and them liked in the progression that I paid. When I start thinking about records that hit, then I was, oh, okay, I started seeing Because that's what the rock bands was doing. They was going back, and they could... Who was it? Eric Clapton told me about, uh, who was it? Robert Johnson. Or? Robert Johnson. Yeah. I feel like shit, because <laughs> I didn't know who Robert Johnson was. You know, and I'm supposed to know that. And once I realized that's what it so, was. So the idea is that some white British dude knew yeah, about Robert Johnson about and you did. my music yeah. Then, yeah. Uh, and the whole history yeah. of it. When I realized that's what it takes, you have to learn the history of it so you can be proud of what it is. And then... It started coming to you. In all, I found out mostly those British cats knew that. They knew all of that stuff. When we was, you hit one year, you've forgotten. It's the next record. Right. Well, so, so you were thinking, if these British guys are going back and looking at 
you know, country blues, what in the past can I look at? And you thought, hey, Louis Jordan, I can... Uh, yeah, and, and, and to do it was to do it funk. Don't do the same one they're doing. But do the other one was that was the New Orleans stuff. Yeah. And I was right on that, too, because it really worked good with um, a, a funk band, you know, and it's even though it can be boring if you don't, you ain't into it at first, you know, because it's long grooves. But then we saw Philly Cote, yeah. you know, and they, they were like James Brown, but they played all day. They get in one groove and people come, go home and eat, come back, and they groove on. So that was a possibility. I didn't feel too bad when we do one song 30 minutes, right? you know, and people liked it. And we, that became part of our thing. But when you started getting hit records like We Want the Funk and stuff, you had to go back to the drum board. No, these got to be five minutes, three minutes, and get out of here and get another song in. But when it started getting slow where we're not, like, pop all over the place, we go back to our old thing. Jam, groove, blues, chants, and people really liked it, especially college kids. We always get a new set of fans every year when we play college. Freshmen be like, oh, this is Funkadelic? Oh, my God, free your mind, your ass, my father. Right now, Maggie Brain, this Maggie Brain 50th anniversary. And Chili Peppers, they know more about Free Your Mind album than I do. I, we never played Free Your Mind, none of those songs on the stage. We chanted some of the chants. They'll play the whole record for you. <laughs> you know, and I found out most of the punk rocks, that was their favorite. Yeah. And I did it for that reason, knowing that when we did it, this ain't gonna, basically a joke, we was all high as hell. But I knew that once we put that one in the thing, we didn't have to worry about falling no 45s no more. Once we did that one, we was out of the bag. We didn't have to do, they was glad when we did anything that came somewhere close to normal. You know, because we had done Free Your Mind, which worked for a few people, but those people get bigger and bigger over the years. Like now, we do You and Your Folks. It's like a brand new release. What song is that? Right. All of the old Funkadelic, real hardcore songs are bubblegum now. You, I think, were giving a speech at like CMJ or something, and that's when Anthony Kiedis came up to you and said, like, maybe you can come produce uh, my little band I got. That was funny as hell. You know, it was, yeah, it was right here in New York. Myself, Madonna, James Brown. I forget who else was all on the panel. <laughs> and Anthony is, is, you know, hey, you, you produce records. Uh, what did it take for you to produce our band? And that is it. Come out, I'm living on a farm out in Brooklyn, Michigan. Blah, 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 blah. Come out there and talk to me. <laughs> a couple of weeks later, him, Flea, and his, their manager showed up on the front porch. We come to talk about it. And we, we talked, and the next thing I know, they was out there for like three weeks to a month, stayed with me, and they were so crazy, so wild. I'm thinking, they too wild for me. I had to take them into Detroit and get them up their own apartment. Because the police come here, they're going to lock me up. They ain't going to lock them up. Well, they were, they were using his stuff at the time, right? Oh, we all, I was doing my thing, and they were doing their thing. But see, I had been through that already. I had been through that back in Jersey at the barbershop. 
you know. And I'm like, oh no, <laughs> that's one we missed. You know, we had people in the band that, you know, they got high, you know. But um, we had got out of that one, and so that scared Anthony. They were like young and wild and energy, you know. You had to revive one of them, didn't you? Yeah, Anthony. <laughs> I didn't. The band did. They did. They did. I mean, I, that. We're so used to that, and I just told him, somebody's on his nuts, he'll be all right. <laughs> but no, that was, those are the, I think, one of them wrote a book, I think him or Flea wrote a book about it. They had fun there. I took him to see Aretha Franklin, you know, and she was hot, and a friend of mine had a big white rose, and we drove over to see him, and they were so proud. They were more 18 at the time. And they were the ones that stayed like that with us. So when they first got their Grammy, they called us and we did Give It Away. Yeah. Together, we just recorded that. Really? It's, it's going to be on our next album. With them as guests? No, just you guys? Just yeah. us, yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've talked about this before, but I, you know, it, it's clear that you, from the Chili Peppers to other stuff, to, to you being influenced by Cream, that you don't necessarily see it as white musicians having appropriated, as they say, black music. You see it as more of a, a a back and forth, you've said. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just musicians playing. You play all kind of music. We just did some Chinese songs just not too long ago. Did Atomic Dog. <laughs> With the, no, it's just musicians. And the thing is to do stuff that you hear from other people to get influenced by. That's how it's spread. That's how it's going to be, you know, one world music eventually. You can see that in Stevie. You can hear when he went to another country and got a melody from someplace that he liked. That's the way music is. You trade the melodies, you trade the customs and all that. You know, of course some people are gonna get away with it better than other people at any given time. So we take pop music and do the same thing with it. I mean, I guess if there were white musicians making money off the blues that the black musicians never got to make though, that's kind of troubling. Oh, that's, that's kind of troubling. You know, that's not the music, that's the business part of it that you got to straighten out. Somebody else got to take care of the musicians to go in and do it. And ain't nobody going to turn nothing down, you know. A lot of them said, you know, we shouldn't have it better than the people that made it. But um, the musicians, they just be feeling the music and stuff. Like I said, the business got to got to come up and get right. Right now, I'm, getting ready, I'm working with um, uh, attorney Ben Crump. He's helping me with the uh, copyright recapture stuff. And we're trying to give the information to people who copyright is coming back to them. We're going to make an announcement that, okay, you made this record 35 years ago. Your stuff is coming up for recapture. We're going to start doing that on my birthday. We're going to announce that as our foundation to help people to get their copyrights back. So it can be a more equitable thing for people that write, you know, R&B music or any music. I mean, because it's all the same when you're down in the gutter now. It's just that your privilege will get you there first if you're white. But in the beginning, you got a problem, period, if you're doing rock and roll and blues and stuff, you know. But um, the business, they're going to have to straighten that out in politics. And that's what we got. Like I say, Ben Trump is helping us do that. Uh, before I let you go, tell me a little bit more about those albums that you recorded during the pandemic. Reaching for Litness. That's what it's called. Reaching for litness. Reaching for litness. Litness. And it's, I don't know, 
A lot of the, the, the kids, grandkids and stuff, so they have a lot of influence on it. So you get a lot of the, the trap sound in music, you know, from Atlanta and stuff, but with the band playing it, you know, so it's got, it's a, it's, it's brand, it's brand new type of thing, but it's something that you would see Funkadelic Parliament doing. We had a little bit of it on um, Medicaid fraud, dog. You get a lot of the stuff on that, that. It was leaning towards that. Now they got their whole fan club. And the kids, I use in the back. I'm the band director now. Right. And we got some different folks on there that's, that's got a lot of energy. It's going to be interesting. So Reaching for Litness, and then there's another album, isn't there? You said there's... The other one is actually a live album, and part live and part um, studio, but it's a vinyl. All right. It's a vinyl for Medicaid fraud dogs. Psychotropic, and um, Mama told me, and uh, another, I forget the other one, this studio, and then you got the whole Shake the Gate medley, Pole Power, Meow Meow, and Get Low, and... So it's actually a vinyl thing that's, that's really interesting. How do you want to be remembered? Have you thought about that? I don't give a fuck. Really? <laughs> I mean, that's... I, right now, being you know, this age, you start thinking, okay, what is... I'm, I'm trying to get the copyrights back for my heirs. That's what I would like for it to be. That after all of these music that we put out and all we went through, I got most of the rights back. Now it's about setting it up to where... My heirs and the inheritance is done legally, so no lo- whole bunch of lawyers have to get involved. And I got all my kids, you know, they sing with each other, the mothers and is friends with each other. So it's about getting all of that, you know, to, together. My wife is really good on that. So it's the family thing and all the members of the band who had copyright, for them to get their stuff back. And any anybody that sampled our stuff, for them to get theirs back. So, like I said, Ben Crump, he's a frat brother too. So we working on that and gonna announce it pretty soon. In all the years on stage, is there a, a peak moment or moments that stand out? No, I don't let that happen because I'm reaching for another moment. I'm always trying to leave room. If I start getting satisfied with any given thing, you know, I'd go back and stop a long time ago. George Clinton, thank you so much. What a pleasure. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much to George Clinton for sitting down with me for this interview. If you want to see a video version of that same interview, it's actually up on YouTube and beautifully shot. So that's worth checking out as well. But we'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's Volume. And in the meantime, we are a podcast, of course. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts that is always deeply appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.